Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for checking out Toronto Today, the podcast for June 29th. Well, housing, a big issue in the city and not just the cost of buying a house, but rent. Of course, it all intersects. But here's some of the problem right now and a big reason why we're having more conversations about whether work from home is going to influence what you pay for real estate and not just what you pay in terms of buying, but in terms of renting. The city has to stay vibrant. The city has to thrive. And more on that later in the podcast with Nama Blonder, an urban planner. Really fascinating chat there. We cover on a couple different fronts the controversy over corporate sponsors abandoning Hockey Canada. And you can't really blame them. Scotiabank excoriated Hockey Canada in a release yesterday. And Canadian Tire bounced out also. When can you imagine a time when Canadian Tire wasn't heavily involved in sponsorship with hockey at the grassroots level? You go back to the Albert commercials and it was there. Joanne McNeish will join us from Toronto Metropolitan University and Ian Mendez, my friend, uh, senior writer from The Athletic, who's based in Ottawa. He's doing a lot of investigative digging on this story, and it's going to remain a story in the news cycle for weeks to come, if not months. So all that's coming up. Stefan Burrell on why doctors have to get back to offices for the greater good also and to help emergency room doctors also. It was a great chat with Stefan. I want you to be able to hear that. We've got it near the end of today's pod. Toronto Today begins now. Let me start here. Maybe you're a renter, maybe you're not, but you rented at some point in time. You had, you know, no property ownership and you were sort of trying to forge your way into the world unless mom or dad uh, gave you a big break and bought you a place when you were 18 or 19 or after you got out of university residence or college residence. It's a good bet that you realize what it's like to rent somewhere. I think people also decide when they get older um, that they're going to sell off and they don't mind renting for the last 15, 20 years of their life. I know people um, that are about a decade older than me and they rent, uh, but they cashed in and they've got money to go here and go there. Or maybe they're saving and renting for a few years and then they're going to make a big splash, take advantage of real estate. Could be in Ontario, could be in Florida, could be in Portugal. Who knows where they're going? But uh, renting is not an unfamiliar thing to many, many people. But here's a problem right now. When I see this two days ago, I think there's two stats that are going to be a problem here and two sort of concepts. One is the idea that May rentals in the GTA, May meaning the month, saw the largest monthly average rise in prices since 2019. And you might say, well, yes, everything's going up. Okay, is it? Is your salary? Is your disposable income? Is the amount of money that you have at the end of the month for some fun or to put in some kind of rainy day fund or slush fund or whatever kind of fund it is, is that going up? It's probably not because everything else costs more. And obviously, there's that whole landlord-tenant tension, and we saw it at the start of COVID. Landlords are people. I think we had tenants good, landlords bad, asking for rent, the nerve. Yeah, you signed a lease and you made an agreement and government money, the CERB and, and other federal funding was quick to come in um, to help you out. It wasn't the case in, in many other countries like it. So when we see the monthly rate go up by 16 and a half percent from 2021, remember, there's two big issues here. We've got a housing crisis for sure. There's not a lot of affordable homes in the city of Toronto. But as you're going to hear from the mayor of Toronto in this segment, um, that's just how a big city operates. That's life in the big city, as the phrase goes. So not all problems have solutions, but the rent thing is really scary to me. And anybody who's ever prospected moving to Toronto, who isn't a Torontonian, has thought about this. Before I play you something from uh, Nolan Mathias, a real estate agent, uh, who's got a great, I think just a, I watched a YouTube video of him yesterday. And he's a really great pulse on the market. I'd love to get him on live someday to talk about things like this. But um, I remember deciding to go to grad school. Uh, so I'm getting my honors degree in politics. Like we're always thinking retrospectively this time of year, thinking about grad ceremonies and whatnot. I remember that really well, got that done and was really excited. And I thought, do I do a, do I do an MA in politics? Do I go to law school? I wrote a half decent LSAT. I thought I could I could go to law school three years. Sounds like a lot of fun, but it's a lot of work. And then I decided, no, let's go to journalism school instead. And Ryerson, then at the time, now TMU, would have been one of the top schools out there for a graduate program. And I remember having the option as well to stay in London and go to Fanshawe College, community college, but they do a great job with broadcast journalism. I knew a couple of the professors who worked in the industry in London. 
And I, I had a really good in London at the time. I had a, a good part-time job. I had a great social infrastructure. I moved out on my own for first year. So I'd lived five years on my own before I sort of made this decision to stay in London instead of Toronto. Oh, and I'm, I'm doing play-by-play of the football games on the campus radio station. I've got my own show. I'm, I felt like a big fish in a small pond. And I thought, you go to Ryerson, nobody knows you. You're starting from scratch again. All these relationships you've etched out. All that we talked about this all the time on the show. All the currency you put into that bank where people can trust you. You're going to show up for your shift on time. You're going to you're going to be you're going to work hard. You're going to be honest with uh, with you're going to be you know you're you're going to be good. Okay, you you've already established that you are and you can be relied on. Hey, I got somebody sick. Can you do this shift? Sure, I can. Because uh, you do those things when you're you're really selfless in your mid twenties and you want to impress. Okay, you should always want to impress, but I want to impress then. And I just thought Toronto was going to be also really expensive. I was afraid to come to my parents. I think I was afraid to come to my parents, who both were teachers, and say, knowing they've got two other kids, I'm going to live in downtown Toronto. I want a downtown Toronto apartment. So I can't imagine being a university kid now and having those conversations. And every conversation I have with parents who are getting into university age is, do whatever you can. Do whatever you can. You don't want to crush your kids' dreams. You want to facilitate their dreams. One of them is home ownership someday. Okay. That's a tough conversation to have if you're having it already and your kids 27, 28 and thinking about homes. The other is just plain renting by the month. And everybody that's thinking about get, going to post secondary, and I, I would point out the last two years, you can't ignore them. Nobody wants to crush any kids' dreams who are ready to go to those places yet. I'm two years away from that. My kid would go to college, university in the fall of 24. So I got time. But I don't know that this problem is getting any better anytime soon and every parent i hear from says please avoid downtown toronto don't go to tmu don't go to u of t maybe not even york go to guelph go to mac go to and hamilton's not cheap go to western go to windsor uh we we need to find some universities in chatham and sarnia we need to we need to build there because renting and cost of living would be a little less uh than it is right at, uh, you know, up and down uh, Jarvis Street or near near the Rogers campus or where a lot of the TMU uh, buildings are. Uh, so Nolan Mathias says this. He talks about the rental market and the housing market. I think they're two different conversations to have, but he does document how the housing market has affected how expensive your rent is in the city of Toronto and why it's not going to turn around anytime soon. All of a sudden, we're seeing it change back. And we're starting to see a lot of the price drops happen in the suburban areas first. And my feeling is that that is probably going to be where we're going to see the majority of price drops. We probably aren't going to see it quite as much in the downtown areas as people start to move back closer to the proximity of downtown. Now, that's supposedly happening. I think that's there's a little bit of a slow crawl. Maybe maybe your workplace is like, oh, yeah, we're back. We're back in business. We're at it. If you're doing an in-person work and if you work with your hands, if you're outside a lot, you're back. You're like pandemic, pandemic. Nobody, nobody up, up the upper chain is talking about that. Nobody is. They're letting you go and, and be you and, and do your job. Uh, the C word came on the television last night. My wife had gotten home about 20 minutes earlier from the Blue Jays game. And she just, we were watching another newscast that wasn't global. And uh, she just like rolled her eyes and she was like, give me a break. And that's how a lot of people are about the C word, I think, at this point. And you have a right to do that. You have a right to do that after 27 months to tune it out and shut it down. But I think it's interesting. Matthias makes a interesting point about the the rental market. If the resale of homes is not changing and it's actually more valuable to be downtown do you think rent's going to drop or rent's going to go up you know the answer you know the answer and until there's a lot less demand for that what's what's nothing's going to change nothing's going to change if you want to rent out an apartment for your 20 year old or you suddenly find yourself out of your house in the suburbs and you're on your own something happened with your relationship you maybe it was your call and all of a sudden you you go well I'll get a nice apartment in Toronto I'm in my 40s and 50s I'll get a nice apartment in Toronto stay close to my good luck with that good luck with that Matthias notes as well there's been this swing to the suburbs we all know that it's been happening um and part of that is well I I'll get I'll get more bang for the buck I got more space I can Get to a bike path faster. I'm not dealing with the congestion of downtown Toronto. Again, I feel like I've driven Toronto, quote, end quote, three of the last four days. 
And I don't know how people do it on a nine to five basis um, in their cars going from point A to point B. Many of you have to. And I appreciate that. I drive into work five days a week, so no different. But I get a lot better hours, I think, to do it than you might if you're listening. If you're just getting up right now going, Greg, I hit that 401 at eight o'clock. Okay, I'm on the DVP at, at, at 845. I'm on the Gardner at nine. I got it. I hear you loud and clear. Matthias notes this and says, yeah, there was a swing to the suburbs. Don't be shocked when it swings back the other way. But as you start to get further and further away, we start to get to this 20 to 25 kilometer away point and then 30 to 40 kilometers away. And then look at this 70 to 75 kilometers away. You can see that housing prices went up substantially in those areas that were further and further away from the downtown course. And then if you take a look at downtown Montreal and downtown Toronto, Toronto being on the left, Montreal being on the right, what you can see is that there wasn't much price growth in those downtown cores. It was typically under 10% or around 10%, but you start to get into these outlying areas and you have these massive, massive amounts of increases in housing prices. And this is largely, again, due to that preference for more space, wanting to be closer to the outdoors due to the pandemic and the ability to be outdoors. It sounds great. It's very uh, idealistic to say, I'll get more space. I don't need to be into the offices much. And then you get that email. The boss decides you're better off in the office, at least some of the time, at least on the quote unquote hybrid model than you are from home. I don't hear your dog barking. You're more focused. You and I can have face to face meetings. So you're coming back but you just bought a house in Guelph or you moved all the way to London. Or if you live in Hamilton, you went way out of the city core and now you got to drive back into the city core. I talk to these people. They text the show. They exist. They exist on mass. And the current market's saying downtown homes are going to keep that value. And I'm not sure that homes in the suburbs are the suburbs were smoking for a year, probably a year ago, when the pandemic was still uh, very much on our minds, when we were all started to, probably by this point, we're all starting to weigh in when we're getting our second shot. This is long before a third shot was available to anybody. John Tory made this point about housing vis-a-vis renting in the city, and he didn't mince words. With the federal government uh, to make sure that we have an adequate supply and increase out there to build more. They're, they're finding it uh, challenging as, as well to build more rentals as, as we see uh, interest rates are, are going up. And the Premier and I talked today about a number of things we can do together with the federal government uh, to make sure that we have an adequate supply, an increased supply of uh, attainable housing for uh, people who are working. They've got jobs, good jobs in many cases, but this is an expensive city. Hurts to hear that. It's an expensive city. People have good jobs and they still can't afford to do the things they need to do. They still can't. Canoe Steve Gregorio. let me leave you with this, and he documents this about renting, and he documents how tenuous and what a knife edge a lot of people working are, are on and how a lot of people renting are on. They're going to war against inflation, and employment no longer matters. And that's very different rhetoric than we had last year. Last year, it was all about employment, not about inflation. I think ultimately, you never want to fight the central banks, and they're telling you right now that employment is going to become tough. Uh, If I was a home-based employee, I'd be running back to the office right now hoping not to get laid off because ultimately I think employment gets tough, rates go higher, and and they're just going to crush demand in the short term. They have to save face, and ultimately they have to do it quickly. That's the thing. It feels like there's a little bit of a storm coming. An expensive city to live in is only getting more expensive. This is one-way traffic right now. No pun intended. What's happening with Hockey Canada? And let me reset for you where it was last week. I think it happened on Thursday. I didn't do the show Friday. Um, Rabin Ahmed Hawk was in for me. But Thursday, it's when everything started to move. And Wednesday, the Liberal government, and I give full-on credit here, so oftentimes people don't put money where the mouth is, and oftentimes that's government. Um, But Pascal St-Ange, the Minister for Sport of Canada, said with all that is unknown about this situation, and to remind you again to reset, there is a weighty accusation by a woman towards eight members, eight members of uh, what was deemed to be Canada's World Junior Team from 2017 Christmas time going into New Year's 2018. Eight members of that team reunited with their entire group in the summer at an event in London, Ontario. She alleges that a uh, mass sexual assault took place. Um, And uh, Hockey Canada, 
in essence, wrote her a check. I don't know if Hockey Canada offered the check to her first. I don't know if she said, this is what I want, and they gave it to her, or they came to an agreement. That's not known right now, and neither is the identity of these eight players. But the Minister of Sports said, you're not telling people enough, and this was six days ago she said this. Uh, Until they meet two very simple but important conditions. The first one is that they submit the incomplete report and the recommendations and the plan uh, that uh, how they're going to implement those recommendations to Sport Canada. And the second condition is that they sign an agreement with the new office um, of uh, the uh, Integrity and Sport Commissioner and that they work closely with that office to improve uh, the culture amongst the organization and end the culture of silence and uh, and also sexual uh, violence. Applause to the federal government. I know people don't think sometimes they're not accountable for that. No, they're accountable here. And they're making Hockey Canada accountable, saying you've got an alleged sexual assault. You've told us nothing of this. There's been money exchanged, a large quantity of money. Who's to say if it's the right amount? That's not for me to say. Uh, But yesterday, Scotiabank said the same thing. We're pausing our sponsorship with this program. Here's what Scotiabank President and CEO Brian Porter wrote. Like so many of you, I was appalled by the recent reports of alleged assault involving younger ambassadors of Canada's game. We believe we have a responsibility as hockey lovers and sponsors to contribute to positive change in the sport. Scotiabank's out. The World Juniors are happening in August this year. You might remember they got canceled, COVID-related stuff. Omicron was raging everywhere, and, and they had a testing policy, and they just couldn't hold the tournament after starting it. But, my goodness, Canadian Tire out yesterday, TELUS out yesterday. So I think there's going to be more of this than less of this over the next couple of days. Joanne McNeish is Associate Professor of Marketing Management at Toronto Metropolitan University, and she's kind enough uh, to lend her voice to the conversation here. Joanne, thank you, thank you very much first of all, for letting me uh, reach out uh, late last night, agreeing to get up early for me. Uh, So I I appreciate that for our audience as well. Oh, my pleasure. I mean, this is such an important story uh, in terms of how corporations have changed the way that they operate. So happy to be here. It it is one thing where we might not have seen it 10 years ago. I know everyone likes to rage about, well, cancel culture and this and that. Now, this is accountability here. And and corporations Mm -hmm. have every reason especially if they're huge brands and influential brands as well like canadian tire has been they've been sponsoring hockey remember the albert commercials like they've been doing this at the grassroots level for i think 40 years now and when they say they're out that's really significant well in fact for uh, hockey canada business development and partnerships actually account for 43 percent of their money so that's a huge piece, and you only need a few of these big sponsors to pull out for it to have an enormous impact on the organization. And I think that's what's different or important about the time. You said a great word there, accountability, that co- corporations used to believe their only accountability was to the bottom line and to their shareholders or their, their investors. Now they say, no, there's another piece. We have obligations to society, and, and I think that's a good change in terms of how corporations think because corporations are made up of people and people want to be able to stand with their company along with their personal values well you got to look yourself in the mirror you got to look your employees in the mirror uh, most times if you're not working if you're not working remotely and you have to and, and again i think it's also given that there's government oriented funding given there's a lot of charitable work here this isn't necessarily Um, a private business. This is not a a rock band. This isn't even an NFL team which says, we'll take our chances here and see if the sponsors stick with us if we sign or trade for a controversial athlete. This is bigger than that. It it certainly is. And and there are times when even a controversial athlete, there's two sort of good controversy and bad controversy. And you're absolutely right. That's that's a decision for the organization around individuals. But in this case, this is this this is a culture of an organization that people I think have had some concerns about. And we have to think about what what sports is all about. There there has to be a degree of power housed in the handful of few people to run a team. You can't actually let a team do whatever they want to do. But in this particular case, when when power gets perverted, we get the kind of bad behavior, bad actors that we see here. And and this is endemic across a number of sports. We've seen these behaviors in gymnastics, in skating. And so I think it's a way that sport needs to change from the inside. But these corporations act a little bit 
um, like providing a shock or uh, it's like restarting the heart. Let's let's get it going again, but get it going in a different direction. Joanne McNeish is our guest, Associate Professor of Marketing Management at Toronto Metropolitan University on Toronto Today uh, with Greg Brady. Were you at all surprised at the timing of this? Like I said, it's been six days and I just haven't seen a story from Hockey Canada. I haven't seen them like stand up, have their own news conference outside of the um, sort of the testimony they had to give the federal government and the explanation and say, this is what we're going to do. These are the moves. Like they've been really quiet the last six days, maybe to the point, Joanne, where these big companies said, we got radio silence here and we, we can't abide by that. You're not even you're not even putting a story together to try and to try and stem the tide for a while. There's nothing. Yeah, in fact, I think that's maybe a surprise, maybe not. So a large corporation has a crisis team, a crisis management team, and they have plans that they've prepared in advance to be able to run in these kinds of situations. It could be that Hockey Canada had no plan for this, which is careless. If you're a lar- any kind of large organization, you have to have a plan that says, in the following situation, we're going to do this. Because if COVID's taught us anything, that was the big global situation companies and individuals are going to face crisis all the time. And I agree with you. I think what the corporations have said, we can only sit quietly waiting for your response for a certain amount of time. And I honestly think corporations uh, of the caliber of Scotiabank, Tim Hortons, their brands are very valuable to them and their relationships with their customers, their employees, and uh, at, at, with, their, with even their suppliers it are, is really important to them, and they know the longer they wait, they run the risk of damaging their own brand. Because while Hockey Canada owns this situation, when you're in a partnership, you begin to be tarnished by the bad behavior of your partners. And I think that's exactly what happened, that they said this is too long. And I also think people have a greater sense of obli- feel a greater sense of obligation to each other, and they were feeling that this wasn't enough, that you waited to be subpoenaed, that you waited. The government's even acted. And, and as you said, often we criticize governments. They took the first stand to say, no, this is inappropriate until we see action here. And I'm surprised because the situation, they've been facing this situation for a while. What have they been doing in the background? And again, we set aside the fact their lawyers may have said, you can't make public statements. Obviously, these corporations are saying, no, no, we're not going to hide behind legalities. We're going to go out and make a stand uh, about this situation. Because remember, they've signed contracts, so they have to be prepared for the fallout. Scotiabank and Tim Hortons, Mm. the contracts they've signed with Hockey Canada, clearly they just said this is beyond legalese and contracts. This is just an important social issue. It's uh, a, a great to have you on. I want, to, I want to get one more in. Joanne McNeish joining us, Associate Professor of Marketing Management, Toronto Metropolitan University. Um, so stretch this out if you like. Hockey Canada has a lot of other corporate partners. Esso is one. Nike is one. TSN, yep. it's a big, big deal to broadcast the World Juniors. It generates a lot of revenue. Tim Hortons is a massive sponsor yep. of Hockey Canada. You probably have seen this before. Again, it it could be uh, uh, it could be a, a person who's in the movies. It could be an athlete. There's a little bit of a domino effect here because now the lens kind of real the spotlight really shines on these companies saying, "Why don't you have the moral code or the ethics that Scotiabank or Canadian Tire does, Nike or Tim Hortons?" Like these are questions they'll have to answer in these next few days. They will. Now, because the story's fresh, we're picking up on the people who have done the public announcements. In private, I think the other corporations, Nike in particular, tends to be quick to take a, a stand on these issues. Mm. Uh, but in each case, they'll be considering their course of action. But once again, we're, we're beyond a time when a corporation cannot take a stand. In other words, the advice used to be, no, 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 don't get involved in social issues. Now it is part of the obligation. That's, that's how, actually, if we think corporations have really changed, that it used to be one focus, now they do feel they belong to the bigger society. So I would agree with you again, their silence uh, can have two connotations. It, it isn't agreement or complicity, but they're also thinking, what about all the other athletes and teams who are not part of this do we want to pull our sponsorship and destroy this event yet again? Because a third year in the row, mm-hmm. that's going to be a difficult thing to restart. It's not impossible. So sometimes corporations are caught between, do we punish uh, an organization and yeah. a few bad actors? 
but that means we punish everybody. So that's some of the calculus they have to do. Yeah. I think that we'll see them coming out, but, but well, each co- corporation has to think this through for themselves and, as I said, balance all the mm-hmm. people that are involved in this. 100%. i got to leave it there, but uh, w- what great insight. Thank you very much for doing this for us, and, and I hope we can stay in touch. It's too important a story to, to let slip through the news cycle, and we're going to find out more about it clearly. Thank you for the time today. Thank you, Greg. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Joanne McNeish, Associate Professor of Marketing Management, Toronto Metropolitan University. Um, Sheeman, I want to play you a clip from Erica Eiffel yesterday who joined us. She writes for the Hill Times. We were talking about the Canadian flag. I really wanted to get a feel for her because she had been very critical, obviously, of the Freedom Convoy, lives in Ottawa. I think people in Ottawa have a different lens. Again, sometimes it's best just to listen and we can observe all the TV coverage from afar. But if you lived in Ottawa, you were going through something a little different than the rest of the country back in January and February. So I said to her during our chat yesterday, when you see the flag, you see it on a truck, you see it on a hat, you see somebody waving it. How's it land for you? And she said this. I cross the street now, to be honest, because that doesn't symbolize anything good for me anymore. It was already shaky by the time the convoy happened. There's something that just does not sit right in terms of a country and unity of a country for me that innocent people could be under siege in this country and literally nobody would care. That stings. It stings. And so when I think of Canada as a country, it's sure it's place. It's the place where I was born and grew up and had experiences and all that, but it just doesn't sit the same way. It's like, Partially because it's now it's like when you see a U.S. flag, you're, you're like, oof, I'm not sure about that person. I, I feel the same way for anybody sporting a Canadian flag a little bit too hard. Shiba Siddiqui rejoins me right now. I, I like that she says that because sim, symbols matter um, wherever you live. And, and some flags, I'll see a flag on the news or somebody waving something. And it makes me feel a certain way. And um, that's an interesting comment. We had a great conversation after the show yesterday about about whether it's been whether our flag, which a lot of people love, has been sort of co-opted by a movement or whether it's sort of drifted back to just making us feel good about each other in the last few months. I don't know. I don't know if we're there yet. I love the Canadian flag. I love being Canadian. When I travel, I have a little Canadian flag on my backpack or wherever it is. Or, you know, my, I have my kids in sweatshirts that's you know, have the Canadian flag on them. Uh, but when I remember when we moved to, we were in York region, in rural York region, in the country. We, we just moved there. It was one street in the middle of nowhere with maybe 20 houses on it. And... Um, None of our neighbors would talk to us. And I think in the news cycle at that time, there were, you know, there were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of terrorist activity happening globally. And I remember no one wanted anything to do with my husband. They thought he was going to blow their house up, quite frankly. And um, they wouldn't even make eye contact with me. And you know me, I go everywhere and I talk to mm-hmm, everybody. Mm-hmm. So um, I put a Canadian flag on our front lawn and I really noticed that it made a difference. I mean, I, I, before the flag, I went and I, I, would bake, I would bake things for the neighbors. I wanted to meet everybody because that's what I do. And nobody would even make eye contact with me. But slowly, slowly, I think they realized, okay, maybe they're not terrorists. And, um, and, that's, how, and that's what the, the flag represented for me. Um, now, where we live, there is, I, it's a different, we've, we've come, it's like a 180 now because um, we're in a great neighborhood, lots of people, friendly, amazing neighbors. And there's this one black pickup truck in our neighborhood that I've only seen in the last couple of months that has this huge Canada flag <laughs> on the back. And it makes me a little nervous. And I think about my, like, we're in a neighborhood where the, all the kids cycle or yeah. walk or scooter to school. And I think about my kids when I see this truck. I haven't seen this truck around lately, but, you know, from January to, let's say, um, April or May, it was always around the neighborhood. And I, I couldn't figure out where it was from, what house it was from, but it made me nervous. You're making me think also about last summer where uh, pre, you know, Freedom Convoy, pre a lot of the the debate and the, the vitriol about mandates and who we are and what we should do. Because for indigenous peoples, like last year at this time, we we had to listen and we needed to. We had to listen to them, get a little bit of a talking to because they said the symbolism of, of your flag is that's we think of that as a colonial flag. We think of that as yes. a flag that you know, in essence, conquered our people and shunted our people off to the side. And if we were talking reconciliation, remember how it was a big deal that the Canadian flag was flown at half mast for a long time in remembrance of kids lost in residential schools. And some people said, "Okay, but are you going to 
fly it interminably at half mast or doesn't mean like it it is just always going to mean different things to different people erica lays that out right there and she said it was happening before the convoy i think it can be very triggering at this point especially with all that's happened in the last while the last year alone i think that canadian flag holds different representation and meaning for different people and i really hope we can get back to just seeing it mm. i don't know as as uh, pride for our country and being Canadian. All right. Our four for four quiz. The four of us here. Uh, Gord Rennie, Shiva Siddiqui, Dave Bradley. Dave does uh, What Happened When does a phenomenal job with it. Uh, he had an option today to name it as a hug holiday or camera day. And I think you chose the right one. I know I know you did. Waffle Iron Day. whoop de doo But camera day. I was thinking this. Doesn't it feel weird to see somebody with an actual large camera now? Like, don't you assume they're a professional photographer? Yeah, that's true. Actually, you're right. And yeah. yet we used to all carry them like to big... Uh, my kid's got a soccer tournament. I'm meeting up no. with an old friend. I'm going to bring a giant camera, wear it around my neck, as opposed to the phone in my pocket to take those photos. The cameras and phones, though, have come so far. They're so good so now. So far. Do you think they, so re- do they really do? Like, I'd love to know what camera sales are like. For like, ex- I think we bought a $1,000 camera like 10, 11 years ago, and it was like, yeah. I w- I'm not sure I was allowed to touch it. It's just my wife's. <laughs> Like stay away from that and the and the bigger wow. car. But there's a whole generation now that doesn't know the the joy of getting your pictures developed and waiting oh, yeah. a week and coming back and find that dad took one fuzzy photo, two fuzzy photos. That one's out of focus. <laughs> yeah. That one has his thumb in it. Yeah. yeah. Here's a picture of his foot. Yeah, you were a kid figuring it out. There's mom in a negligee. What yeah. the hell is happening whoa. in my house? This is a problem. Whoa, I gotta whoa, get out of here. This That's, got awkward. Yeah, the Brady the Brady therapy session is about to, <laughs> about to begin. But you and then the Polaroids. Think about that. Oh, I know yeah. when we first got one of those Polaroid things, you'd wander around the house taking pictures of like furniture and your parents would be like, you just wasted like $20 yes. worth of film. <laughs> but it was so fun to it see it come right in front of your eyes. Yes. I think our wedding was in 04 and we gave everybody like like a camera at the table. That was That's a big thing oh, at weddings. that's a great idea, yeah. Yeah, I know mostly at, at Dave's weddings, people are proposing to each other. But in this case, yeah. in this case, there was actual photo Why photographer to open old wounds. I'm sorry. Can we get that couple on? No, they're not a couple anymore. <laughs> doomed from the start. All right, uh, not doomed from the start is our quiz, and Shiva Siddiqui has our four for four quiz yes. this morning. And I love this because it's a great segue into it's National Camera Day today. So that's what our quiz is actually on. And yeah, you're right. Now we're at a point in society where every single one of us has a camera strapped to us at all times. Scary. Uh, yeah, it is scary. It can be. Okay. <laughs> First question, guys. Multiple choice. The digital camera was invented in 1975, 1941, or 1992. Gord. <laughs> um, the, you could be really wrong here. Yeah, yeah I know. Or really yeah, yeah. yeah. Just oh, there's a lot of this technology. Let's. I'm gonna go off the beaten path, way into the bushes. 1941. Ooh. Okay, Dave. I was gonna go with 75. Okay, Greg. I'm a 75 person also. Okay, you're both right. It's 1975 uh, by Stephen Sasson, who worked at Kodak at the time. And guys, fun fact: the first color photograph was taken in 1861. <laughs> wow. So that's what Gord was, was thinking about right there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. According to a Canadian study, who takes more selfies, men or women, or both equally? Dave. Um, I think it's probably going to be men. So I'm going to say men. Greg. Women. Gord. Women. Okay, you're all wrong. It's both equally. Oh. Huh. Well, almost. Men Almost. take about 78% of, the, of their selfies, and women are at 79%. So okay, the answer is women. It's 9% No, it's, yeah. it's almost equal. It's no, that's almost, not almost equal. equal. That's it's 1%. 1%. One of the tri- no, 78 and 79. Oh, I thought yeah. you said 70 and 79. That's what I thought. No, 78 oh, and 79. My oh. apologies. Okay, it's okay. a 1% difference. Uh, but here's the thing. <laughs> men, the selfies that men take, they keep 75% of those selfies to themselves, <laughs> whereas, oh. whereas women just post them. Oh, that's a good point. Maybe, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, just... and in, another interesting fact is that men tend to take pictures more of objects, while women do prefer pictures of themselves. Did you just imply men think of women as objects? Because we don't. We've come a <laughs> no, long way since then. No, that's not at all what I was okay, saying. Good, no, good. no, I'm yeah, sorry that you read into it that We don't want to be cast in that light. Not too many men either do the duck lips. That's true. When they oh. get a selfie. 
That is like the Kardashians are responsible for that. I know in four, I know in four or five men go for walks together. They like to take selfies of the walk to prove no, that not, they all went out playing. for a walk yeah. together. Yeah. Look at us. We're walking and talking about our feelings. It's exercise <laughs> and sharing. Golfing. Uh, also known as golfing. Yeah. Well, you, but you can edit out the seven yeah. iron and the hats yeah, and the carts. Exactly. And you, know, you can just you can digitally scrub those. It's. Cool. I think it's just it's too intimate for men or something. What is with you guys? I don't not know. Walking I, together. Yeah. It's the intimacy of it because it can get very intimate when you're alone in the woods, you're not looking at each other and you're just having a deep conversation. I don't know. I think it's, it's too, it makes men uncomfortable. I'd love to see a case. I think you're right. I'd love to see a case study of it, but we don't do it. Yeah. It's like, you're what, okay. what are we doing? <laughs> True or false? <laughs> the number one province to take the most selfies in Canada is British Columbia. Craig. Well, it's the third biggest population, but it's so beautiful out there. Maybe there's more. I, I'm going to say no, but I get why people would say yes. I'm going to say no. It's not okay, BC. Gord? I think it is BC. Dave. Yeah, I'm, I'm siding with Gord on this one. I think it's BC. You're both right. Yeah. It's true. British Columbians take the most selfies. Ontario is at number two. Is Saskatchewan oh. at the bottom of that list? Hey! <laughs> <laughs> you take one selfie, it catches about six different people because there's no mountains. <laughs> it just goes on forever. Okay, last question. What does DSLR stand for? Diminished Solar Light Regulator, Digital Single Lens Reflex, or Dynamic Shooter Low reduction. Dave. I'm going to say the last one. Dynamic shooter. Okay. Gord. I'm going to go with the second one. Yep. Digital single lens reflex. That's okay. I, I want that also. I want the reflex <laughs> one. <laughs> okay. You're both right. Yeah. It's digital single lens reflex because it has interchangeable lenses. See? I knew that too. All okay. Right. Just guys, I, have a, I just have a bonus question. Okay. okay. Quick bonus do question. It. Does anyone know, and I'm not, there's no multiple choice or true or false. Can you figure it out? Does anyone know the most viewed photograph in history? And I promise you've all seen this photograph. Uh, mm. You've all, most. sometimes possibly on a daily basis, you have seen this photograph at one point in your lives. Daily basis? Is, yes. it, the, is it the little kid with the fit, angry fist? <laughs> the <laughs> <moment>. <laughs> you know what? Where are you hanging out? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a meme. No. No, okay. Yeah, because no. I, I was thinking about the guy holding the girl's hand while watching the oh, other girl yeah. in the red top go by, but that's in the last two years. No. I've seen, yeah, well, I don't know then. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Let's say a decade ago. Maybe. Uh, I'm just assuming about a decade. You've, you've seen this picture every day. What country, every day what country was after- it taken in? Can you hint? Oh, Would you guess I, the U.S.? No, I don't know. I, it could be the U.S. I don't know. Okay, this was, I'll give you a clue. It was captured by Charles O'Rear in 1996. And it's called Bliss. That's the name. It's the most viewed photograph in history. It's called Bliss. I don't know it. I don't know it. Okay. So can we tell you guys? Okay. It's the Microsoft Windows default wallpaper with the green grassy hill and the blue sky and the clouds. (laughs) You know, when you start your computer and that's the first picture that shows up. Oh, I'm looking at it right now. It does look beautiful. It's called Bliss. I could walk in that field. (laughs) Not a lot of bugs. Most people don't know how to change their wallpaper. (laughs) Oh yeah, my that's goodness. true. <laughs> yeah, it's a lovely setting. Oh, wow. It's a love. It's a lot of nice land there. You could build the the four thirteen through that. Oh yeah, uh, really nicely. <laughs> yeah. I think. Yeah. Not disturb that dragonfly that Dave was mentioning earlier. I think that works. We're back with another show tomorrow morning to set you up for a Canada Day weekend, and uh, it'll be very July one centric uh, for sure. It's been a big conversation. I think not just on our show, but all the shows here at six forty Toronto, and I think in your workplace, in backyards, and it's about cost of living in Toronto. And this all intersects. We were talking about rental prices earlier in the show. We were talking about the responsibility of of landlords. We were talking about the need for more houses. But where do they go and where should they be? All these are critical questions. And, and then just making them affordable. That was a big focus for Doug Ford and John Tory meeting. Look, I'd rather they met than not met. I'd rather they talked than not talk. But 
Uh, with inflation where it's at, construction costs, it is it is not an easy problem to find its way out of. Uh, let's bring on uh, Nama uh, Blonder. She uh, founded Smart Density. She's an architect, urban designer, urban planner. Nama, it's amazing to have you on. Thank you very much. And obviously, um, you're well-versed in, in these topics. What have you made of a lot of the conversation uh, here about the need for more affordable housing in Toronto? It's a it's a it's an easier said than done principle in large international cities, isn't it? Oh, for sure. And and it's not just that. It's also about, you know, the type of unit that we're building, the, the mix of units. Is it affordable? Affordable affordable to whom? Do we have enough choices between houses and smaller condos? So there's definitely lots to discuss. Where should, if we look just in Toronto proper, where is there room to put more? I know we're building up. Goodness knows we've got condominiums that go right to the sky. Like you you can look at a before and after photo of, of anything along Lakeshore and it looks different five years ago compared to 20 years ago. Where can houses go in Toronto proper, Nama? Oh, come on. We have lots of places to, to <laughs> grow because uh, the vast majority of the city is zoned for low-rise residential, around 70%, this is right, mind-blowing, 70% of the city, all you can build is single-family homes. And right now, the city is working to change that. But in terms of where we can build, Toronto has lots of place to absorb more housing. Is there a neighborhood or even just an area? Would you say it's in the north, it's in the east, it's in the west? Where would you pinpoint and say we can get most of the good work we need to do constructing these houses in blank area? What would you say? If you look at the city, you will see a very a, a reflection of what we call the land use map in the official plan. Now, I'm trying to not to get too much uh, into professional terms, but the land use map is, is where the city directs you know, our housing. And if I'm going back to the 70%, to answer your question, mm-hmm. we have at least 70% of the city where, uh, where we can build more houses. And specifically, it's called the neighborhoods, okay? It's, a prof- it's, it's one of those terms in the official plan. And those neighborhoods could absorb more housing in a form, what we call the missing middle, in a form of, you know, plexes uh, and low-rise apartment buildings and specifically those neighborhoods have you know their own main streets such as Christie and Dufferin and Lansdowne uh, these streets that are not commercial streets but are pretty wide like if you look at Christie and Dufferin yeah they are pretty wide and could accommodate more housing for sure yeah yeah I, I can see where that would work so you know where we are uh course keys down by sugar beach right on the waterfront queens key and there's a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of planning and a lot of building here you know this a lot of people talk about our waterfront and they say and by the way chicago i just had a friend i just talked to him yesterday and he's flying back from chicago today and i constantly hear the phrase uh chicago's waterfront chicago's lakefront on lake michigan is everything that toronto could be could it ever be that way again or have we just built too much down there we can't have a waterfront like chicago illinois does well chicago is actually a perfect example also on the riverfront that has mm-hmm. taken a major transformation like just I, I encourage everyone to google chicago riverfront riverfront um i think the efforts and the amount of work that is now being done the waterfront is amazing i look forward to to seeing it because i can tell you you know when i moved to toronto almost a decade ago i was like i was so expected i really i ran to the lake and i was like whoa what's going on why why does it you know what does it look like this right it's very underutilized it feels very in post-industrial right it's very clear that um, it's not being used right now and i think what the, the city and waterfront toronto and the province I think it's it's amazing. I'm just, I really look forward to seeing how it all materialize in the future. Nama Blonder is our guest, uh, architect and urban planner at Smart Density. And I urge people, by the way, because I was looking at it before uh, before I went to bed last night, the silo yeah, at, at smartdensity.com. You document it's one of your favorite projects, the silo by Toronto Waterfront. We're all so hopeful. <laughs> I, I'm a kid that would, I just loved, I, I grew up in London, loved coming to Toronto to go to Ontario Place to go what they had water slides there concerts bumper boats and obviously ontario place we want to we want to rebuild that and and make it just make it thrive again um a little like how navy pier is in chicago Te- i want to direct people to the silo but give us some words as to as to why the the the, the silo could really help our waterfront the old silo well, site so- 
Silo is one of those examples of post-industrial that we can, you know, respect and celebrate our industrial heritage and at the same time, you know, bring people with a vibrant public realm. So the question is, how do we reuse those structures in a way that attracts people, celebrate our past and, you know, creates an amazing city in the future? So this is I, I want to I, and I want to make sure you you don't think I'm firing a political question at you because it's one thing because <laughs> uh, I'll tell you something when we talk about I make this sort of joke all the time, if you will. When when we talk about immigration, if someone's at a backyard barbecue Friday and they're like, hey, I have a big opinion on immigration. Everybody come around and listen. People are like, oh, no, what's what's she or he going to say? But <laughs> do major cities get to where um they shouldn't be hubs for large amounts of immigration anymore. Can can the Londons, the Parises, Sydney, Toronto, can they handle having more people come in? And I often feel, is that the best place to start off? And I say that from any country, no matter what you're doing, because it's so damn expensive. It, it'd be less expensive to live in Kitchener or Guelph or London. It's 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 getting more expensive, but it's not like I just feel like sometimes it, uh, we bring in people from other countries and we say, hey, good luck. And you got to live in downtown Toronto. And that's an intimidating thing. Well, first of all, you're asking the per the perfect person because I obviously immigrated <laughs> immigrated to Canada, so that was my choice, and I'm dealing with the housing, you know, in the housing sector. Listen, immigrants, newcomers, we and I say we mm -hmm. we don't know about Kitchener and Mississauga. No one heard of Oakville, <laughs> you know, when they are when they are moving to Canada. We we heard of Toronto, we heard of Vancouver. One has more snow, one is a little bit grayer. You know, this this is kind of the image, um, and I think immigrants, talent, newcomers. They are attracted to what the big city has to offer. And that is true to anyone in our generation. And whenever they, you know, people tell me, oh, the suburbs are booming. Yeah, that's great. But the suburbs could never compete with what the city has to offer, especially Toronto, which is an amazing city. So to answer your question, big cities, you know, by 2050, 75% of the world population is going to live in cities. Cities are going forever to attract, you know, people, immigrants, talent. It's, it's a fact of life. And believe it or not, when I moved here, Toronto was my affordable option. Yeah. I know it sounds like a joke, but, a joke, but it is. <laughs> and, and for eight years, I've been watching the city becoming less and less affordable. And what happens is, is you know, people won't stick around. If people don't see a future for themselves, they will leave. So I think that's why it's so important to tackle the affordability well, uh, I, crisis. I, that I, I, and I want to definitely have you uh, on again to have more conversations because I'm learning a lot. And I think the audience, I can tell by the text line, the audience is too. So I got 60 seconds. That's my worry about Toronto. And I rant about it all the time and I rave about it all the time that if we're not making people come back to the offices and they're at home out in the suburbs, what happens to our city? Can businesses thrive? Can even owning a park? It's one thing to come in for a baseball game or a concert, but then to leave right away. That's not really that's not really urban. That's not that's not 416 living. Can we bring do we need to bring people back to workplaces to make sure our city thrives? What cities have to offer, it's not only nine to five. Uh, when you, you know, I have a friend, she just moved to the suburbs. She said, even when I want to go for a walk, there is no sidewalk. When I want to go and have coffee, I need to drive around and around. The suburbs eventually, you know, not to mention commute, commuting when, you know, we get back to our offices. Mm -hmm. it, eventually, the suburbs cannot compete with the big city. And I think it's just a, a, a you know, a point in time when we need to deal with it. But eventually... The city is the city, and we can't compete with what the city has to offer. Nama Blonder, architect, urban planner. Go to smartdensity.com uh, and, and find out more about what she does. It's a great pleasure having you on the show, and, and I hope Thank we get you. more conversations. Have a great long weekend. You too. Hockey Canada. Everybody really familiar with that logo, how you just know what that picture looks like. We vary the, the sweater sometimes for the tournaments. Sometimes people like the design. Sometimes people don't. But we know that logo. It's one of the most recognizable logos. And, and kids recognize it. And you see it at obviously rinks. And sweaters get sold as a result of this. I'm not sure they're keeping that logo. I'm not sure Hockey Canada will be called Hockey Canada. I had enough conversations yesterday with people thinking this is almost, you know, pardon the phrase, going to get burned to the ground. Um, unless, because uh, this corporate support thing, Canadian Tire yesterday, Scotiabank yesterday as well. 
ending sponsorships of Hockey Canada. I had, I had an economics expert tell me those funds don't come back. You don't just wander back three weeks later. They won't come back in time for the World Juniors um, because the organization has not responded well or even looked the part um, in this 2018 sexual assault allegation. To reset uh, some of it, Sandy Solero just did it in the news, but I'll go as quick as I can. Hockey Canada hasn't been very transparent. They sure haven't been very accountable about uh, assault allegations coming from a woman who says she was assaulted in um, at a in a ho- London, Ontario hotel room after a tournament and gala summer 2018. The lawsuit was settled in the was filed in April and it was quickly settled one way or the other. Um, They came to an agreement uh, with Hockey Canada and Hockey Canada paid her. The money's undisclosed. There's obviously an NDA that's been signed, etc. Before we get to Ian Mendes, I want you to hear this clip. Scotiabank CEO was adamant like this is absolutely unacceptable. So listen to a lot of this ad. And this is like this is some triggering language, but I love what Scotiabank did in essence saying, let's 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 cut the uncomfortable. Don't worry about it com- being uncomfortable, the conversation. Let's get all this out there, all these stereotypes, all these things that jerks would say about hockey and make it more inclusive. And clearly what Hockey Canada is doing here is is contravenes directly Scotiabank's M.O. here. Here's the clip. Do they even have ice in China? Women's hockey is just boring, okay? Let's watch girls play. Make me a sandwich. (laughs) First Nations kids are too lazy. You're never going to make it, Ethan. You're just going to get hurt. Keep hockey straight. Which locker room is he going to use? Girls hockey isn't real hockey. Shouldn't this guy be coaching cricket? Can he even skate? Go back to where you belong. Go back where we belong. This, this is where we belong. And that's PK Subban, uh, ambassador for Scotia Bank. That's heavy stuff. That commercial's pretty heavy, and they clearly don't feel aligned with Hockey Canada either at the grassroots level or at the international level. Ian Mendez is a senior writer for the Athletic. He's doing a lot of coverage on this story. He's covered a lot of big stories. And no shortage of things to write about this year, Ian. But this one, this one just breaks some ground. Like I, I watched uh, Pascal Saint Ange last week pull the funding. The federal government stepped up. Actions more than words. And six days later, um, you know it's. The news cycle moves so fast, but Scotiabank's out, Canadian Tire's out, TELUS is out. There'll be somebody today that's out as well because there's usually a drip-drip effect to these things. Absolutely, Greg. And you know what? Uh, myself and Katie Strang uh, and uh, Dan Robson, who uh, the three of us have been kind of tackling this story on, on various levels, uh, we've reached out to uh, a hand, even more sponsors, and we're hoping to hear back from them this week and hear what they're going to do. I think what's interesting, and you mentioned Pascal St. Ange, uh, mm-hmm. who's the minister uh, in charge of, of, of this under her umbrella, um, you know, saying that they, a lot of people are wondering, hey, if you settled this claim in the spring, did you use taxpayer dollars? And Hockey Canada was quick to say, no, 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 we didn't use taxpayer dollars. Well, okay, then if you're Scotiabank and you're Tim Hortons and you're TELUS and you're Canadian Tire and you're these big sponsors, are you not thinking to yourself, okay, well, if you didn't use taxpayer dollars to sell this. Did you use our money, the the money that we inject into your uh, organization? And I think this is important because Hockey Canada, Greg, um, it's a different entity. This isn't swimming Canada or gymnastics or, you know, pick a sport that struggles to make money and kind of make ends meet. This is a this is a machine. And um, the, the idea that they potentially used money in any way, shape or form uh, that should have been earmarked for other causes um, and used it to settle this claim. It's it's abhorrent. It is disgusting. And uh, the idea that they had no idea which eight players this is, that's that's a joke. I, I'm sorry, but there's no way that you settle a lawsuit uh, with with some financial uh, payment and not know the parties involved that like that seems impossible to me. So uh, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered. There's another standing committee uh, later this month July, or in about mm-hmm. a month from now, July 25th, 26th in Ottawa, where I think we're going to get some more answers on this. A hundred percent. And you nailed something that absolutely it should be apparent to anybody following this story. Hockey Canada is they're They're a well-off organization, but they don't have a printing press, Ian. So the money either comes from grassroots 
or it comes from amateur teams or it comes from the government or it comes from corporations. Like there's nowhere else the money they paid this this alleged victim can come from. There's nowhere else. No, exactly. And, and this is the point. Like they're sitting on a surplus of millions of dollars. Like I said, this isn't uh, a grassroots, uh, you know, sporting entity like you see all the other, you know, when every four years when the Olympic cycle comes around, most of these uh, you know, sports uh, organizations in Canada, the baseball Canada, like I said, swimming Canada, but they're struggling. They're struggling to make ends meet, not hockey Canada. And you know what? The one phrase I want to jump on that you said earlier, Greg, before you brought me on, mm -hmm. you used the term burn it to the ground. I, I couldn't agree more like and, and, and maybe that's harsh language. And maybe the the phrase shouldn't be burn it to the ground. Maybe it needs to be complete overhaul or whatever. I hope at the end of this, uh, people understand there was there was two crimes here, uh, equal, you know, both very heinous. And the, and the first is the fact that this young woman uh, says she was sexually assaulted by eight hockey players. And if you read the statement of claim, it is it is so upsetting. Um, you'll think that these young men, if they were involved in this and if they did the things that she says that they did, you think they should never play hockey for a living again and get paid for it like that. When you read that, it's disgusting. But then the second part of this becomes the potential protection of those players, the cover up and, you know, the, the systemic uh, barriers that were put in place to make sure that these people were not held accountable. That's what I think is really upsetting that this happened, Greg, and nobody paid a price for it. Nobody paid a price for it. And then that, that's really upsetting because we asked, there were adults in the room, yeah. literally and figuratively in this situation. There were adults in the room and nobody did anything and nobody listened to the victim. We do a terrible job in sports journalism of looking at stories through the victim's lenses. We only look at it through the athlete's lenses of, oh, is he going to get suspended? Is he going to get traded? And what's going to happen to his contract? If we did a better job of listening to the victim, we would have a completely different lens on this entire issue. A hundred percent. Ian Mendez joining a senior writer for The Athletic. And listen, if if you were accused of something so heinous or I were accused of something so heinous, we'd hire a criminal lawyer and we'd, we'd go to the wall to defend ourselves. But that's not what I'm seeing here. This looks like a very quickly settled lawsuit. It, like for Patrick Kane, for example, was accused of a sexual assault by a woman in Buffalo, his hometown. And Kane said, I didn't do it. I'm innocent. I'm going to hire a lawyer. I'll, I'll take this. To that's his that's his want to do. What he didn't have was an organization saying, How's $3 million sound to sign an NDA? And, and Sheldon Kennedy brought this up uh, in the, I love this quote. The last thing we need to do is free, and everybody knows who Sheldon Kennedy is, obviously a sexual assault survivor at the hands of Graham James. The last thing we need to do is freeze voices. People that have been abused in any way, shape, or form have had their voices frozen from the time the abuse started. So we shouldn't use NDAs to keep freezing a victim's voice if they choose to speak. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and you have to understand, especially the victims of sexual assault and then let's call this what it was uh greg this was a gang rape um the, the 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 survivors of that it is a life-altering traumatic experience where you feel like you were intimidated and coerced into uh things that you didn't agree to and then you feel like you're on an island you feel like seven or eight uh, people did this to you and then nobody listens to you like mm. and again we need to talk about bystander intervention bystander training because uh, somebody should have, we just needed one guy in that room. One person needed to stand up and do the right thing. Um, this is, this is the issue here. And I, I don't know where this goes, uh, mm -hmm. but I, I do hope that there is a complete recalibration at hockey Canada. And I think this is a, this is a, a call from the mountaintops that uh, we, we probably need more women in mm -hmm. positions of power and authority in, in, in our, in our sporting world so that things like this don't happen. So that uh, I'm pretty sure that I'd like to think that, um, I, you know, sorry, sorry. Go ahead, Greg. No, no, I, I've only got another minute, minute left, but I agree with you. Here's what I do want, Ian, and I'm curious if you I don't find it problematic yet. I don't find it disappointing yet, but I want to hear from a prominent female player. I do soon. I, I want to hear from a Natalie Spooner. I want to hear from a Marie Philip Poulin. What's the logo mean to you? What's the organization mean to you? What does this mean? Because I, it, it, them stepping up and saying, this is no good, and I want answers, even a former player like Haley Wickenheiser, I do want that. I, I'm giving it time, but I think it has to come at some point to say, this is no good. You know what? I'll, I'll, I'll slightly disagree with you on that, and I'll say, I'm tired of hearing about women speak about this. I want to hear some men. Like, give me Sidney Crosby. Give me, give me people who have worn that logo 
and and reach the highest peak to say I'm embarrassed for what happened. That's I want Greg. I like more. Both, I like both, but you nailed it. You're right. Yeah. You're right. And yeah. that and whether that would be more impactful or not is uh, is I, I don't think there's any doubt. Your solution is more impactful than mine, but I, I I'm hoping it ends up being both. Hey, we'll keep reading you. I got to leave it there. But Ian, your work on this, we'll be reading you and Katie and uh, and Dan all on the Athletic. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you for having me. You bet. Um, we're, we're still hearing from listeners on a regular basis. I chit chat. I mean, everybody's health is their own business. What they do at their doctor's office is their business. But sometimes you get those sharing people. And I hear from the sharing people, uh, whether it's people I see on my street or at soccer practices for my kid or whatever, who still aren't back to seeing their doctor in person. And in many cases, it's the doctor or the nurse that isn't back. Um, it's one of those things we've got to fix at a certain point in time, our next guest tweeted this only 12 days ago. Uh, me. So when was the last time you saw your regular doctor for condition X patient? Well, haven't been able to see them since before COVID me. So you haven't seen them in over two years patient. I guess so in brackets, he writes, and we wonder why emergency rooms are overwhelmed. And you've seen all the headlines. ER is overwhelmed. There's a big reason. Walk-in clinics are a disaster right now. Long waits. I took my kid to a walk-in clinic in March. It was four hours. But you breathe, you count to 10, you try and keep your kid busy and you get through it. And and he's 14 now, not four. I remember those days. Don't want to live those uh, live those out again. Stefan Burrell is an epidemiologist and uh, is kind of to join me now. It's great to have you on and, and you shoot it show straight with uh, with me and our audience. There is that sense of urgency and it's one thing to keep. I'm just surprised we're still here having a lot of these conversations. But but there's there's a few reasons as to why we are. It feels like, isn't there? Yeah, I, I, th I think that's exactly right. I think when we just just for context, so I provide family, I work as a population health and a family doc in, in the shelter system in Toronto. And so, you know, I, I, I see a lot of folks who are disconnected from the system already at baseline, I should say. But during COVID, I, I can understand in obviously those early months in 2020 and even through the summer that there was kind of a complete move to virtual care. But as I think as we're all kind of understanding, we're in we're in the summer of 2022 at this point. And many of the folks that I see just have not been in touch or seen their family doctors other than maybe a quick phone call <clears throat> in, in a couple of years. And so they've had prescriptions renewed and renewed and renewed without having things like their blood pressure checked or their blood sugar checked if they're diabetics, et cetera. And so I think, you know, people have now kind of taken it upon themselves just to skip that process because it's so complicated to get in with a family doctor. It can take months. And they're going straight to emergency rooms. And, and we're hearing from our emergency room colleagues that they're doing things that should absolutely be done in primary care outpatient settings. And it is bogging them down. And, and so I think it's, you know, just to sort of reinforce and have to talk more about it, like we have to fix this system. Yeah. And, and I see the responses to your initial tweet. Here's one from uh, someone named Emily Joe. My gastroenterologist still won't see me in person. I've been hospitalized four times in the last two years. For my stomach. I have a hard time believing that doesn't play a role. So that's serious business. Even OBGYN sometimes have done virtual appointments. I'm thinking of all the things that you should probably see somebody in person for, especially with all the talk about it in the last week and a half, and rightly so. It's one thing for me. I mean, I've made a joke that my wife had an earache and, and they did a virtual appointment or, or kid podiatrists doing it. You're holding feet up to cameras. But this is stuff that just should have it should have ceased to happen six, seven months ago at the minimum. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, so so what happened was that the government initially put in a number of virtual billing codes that facilitated folks being seen virtually. And I think for some things, I, I'm, you know, I think it makes sense. There is like, you know, you know, a patient really well, mm -hmm. you can follow up, you're seeing it's a chronic condition and you're getting kind of blood work and lab work and you're seeing that and you can follow them virtually. But I think as you're saying, anything that requires a physical exam and also just as, as we often say, like, you can often like lay eyes on a patient and get an idea if they're not doing well. And if you're just talking to them on the phone, a lot of we, there's this assumption that everybody has a webcam, everybody has a smartphone, and that's just absolutely not the case. That is excluding the most vulnerable folks, older folks, non-English speakers, et cetera, in our society that don't have access to those things. So it's all over the phone, verbal, if at all. And and what ha what's happening, and, and I just keep talking to folks over and over again, is that they're just not being seen or even talking to, and they're just going to the pharmacy every few months and getting their meds. And you see folks that have blood pressures of 200 over hundred, and it's just because it hasn't been checked um, in, you know, in a two, in, in over two years. And so I think that we are, you know, the, the costs of this just from a healthcare system, not just the immediate 
emergency of like overwhelming our emergency rooms that are already short staffed and overworked. But it's also the long term costs that are, as you're saying, are going to be mm -hmm. misdiagnoses, you know, not just the things that we've talked about, like cancer diagnoses, but just like, you know, mm -hmm. congestive heart failure and diabetes and the things that we've gotten very good at managing in, in Canada, um, really, you know, bogging down our system for the coming years unless unless we change things. Stefan Burrell's kind of to join us on Toronto today with Greg Brady. So you mentioned the virtual codes, and I think there's that perception out there among the public that the doctors and nurses um, hard job, no doubt, but they get paid the same, whether it's a virtual appointment or not. Is that, is that more real than a myth? I know there's a lot of parameters involved. What, what could you explain that that would make sense to us about it? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, that is broadly the case right now that there are a number of virtual codes that were put in place. And I think, um, what we need to do moving forward is, is, so they've just decreased like to 75%, but I think, you know, folks have, gotten used to like not commuting and not having office space and not having all of those things, even a little bit less of a billing code, it might still make financial sense for them. So I think we need to kind of like drive people back into the offices. Um, and I think that means like putting really kind of specific criteria around the use of a virtual code, for example, or capping the amount of billings that you can do from virtual codes. I don't want to say that this is all about money, but as we know, money plays a role in everything. And so I just think that we need to really kind of control how these virtual codes are being used, because I think that's really going to then incentivize people to getting back in the office and seeing folks. And again, the, den the dentist, I just want to say this, yeah. the dentist did it throughout. And, you know, so we know it can be done and it can be done safely. So there are models, lots of folks have worked in person, but particularly I want to call out the dentist for, they closed, I think for six weeks or seven weeks, and then they've been back with a lot of safety measures in place. And, and so I think, you know, doctors can absolutely, you know, and I say that as a family doctor, like we can absolutely, you know, look at that model and, and implement it for ourselves. Well, and I'd say physiotherapists too, right? Like that, oh, like, uh, uh, and, and they got, they got closed down for longer because of the, the closeness. If you're giving somebody, um, uh, if you're giving somebody, uh, if you're a chiropractor, you're giving somebody acupuncture or even, um, you know, a stress massage for problems for knees or, or joints or whatever, there's just no way. There's no. You can't, what are you going to talk to them for sixty minutes and make your someone's knee feel better? No, it, yeah. you have to be there. That's right. And I just want to also call out sort of like this heroic nature of the personal support workers mm -hmm. in there, bathing folks, feeding folks during the height of the pandemic, and never stopped actually even for a day. And a lot of nurses who work out, and you know, and obviously a lot of doctors too. But we we need like I think the whole system is is kind of not i wouldn't say crumbling but is is under extreme pressure based on this move to virtual and i think as, as you're saying and i just want to really reinforce that we need to put pressure on our government to change the way these virtual billing codes are used in order to really encourage folks back into their offices and seeing folks and really trying to take the pressure off our emergency rooms and our hospitals that is not where we should be sending folks who need a physical exam. Stefan, I got under a minute. That seems like something post-election with the political dust settled. So then we can't say, hmm, is this political? Is, are they jockeying for this vote or that vote? That seems like something the chief medical officer of health or the newly incoming health minister should be able soon to get in front of a camera and do and say, you got to go back. Teachers had to go back. A lot of us had to go back. Some people never had the option to work from home. We so A big voice needs to make this clear. Yeah, I, I think it comes from both the perspective of public health, because it has public health implications when we're stressing our emergency rooms, and also the Ministry of Health, who sets all these reimbursement schemes that really needs to kind of have a good conversation about what, what a meaningful process is going to and, and, a, and a policy is going to look like moving forward. You know, I'm always grateful when you make time for our audience and, and you're an important, important voice out there as well. Thanks for doing this today. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for the opportunity. You got it. Stefan Burrell joining us. That's important stuff. It really is.